minister to them in love. Uh, my mom has been looking into these to, to Mormonism longer than I've been alive. She's absolutely paved the road for me to be uh, loving uh, people in this ministry right now. And she went online last year. She uh, put in her information. She had a couple of missionaries come over to her house. And uh, she wanted to come on up and share a little bit about her experience. And, uh, and, and anyway, two young women came to our home, college-age young women, and I invited them in. I had tea and cookies <coughs> for them. Now, they drink herbal tea. They don't drink caffeine. So um, you have to know if you're going to serve them tea, it has to be herbal. And anyway, we just had a delightful conversation. And I, and I learned over the years um, just to ask about their background, where they're from. Usually missionaries in this area are from out of state. They're usually college age. They take the time away from college to do their two-year mission trip. And um, so I was asking these two young gals about their backgrounds, how long they've been in the church. Both of them had grown up in the church. And, and just kind of setting the tone, you know, for getting to know one another. And then we got into um, talking about God. And I, I always share my testimony, just a brief, you know, kind of the Reader's Digest version of my testimony so they know where I am spiritually. And then I asked the gals, I said, now, would you agree that in all the universe there's one God who has existed eternally? There's there's no other God, just one God. Oh, yes, yes, we believe that. So you say that in, in all the universe, there has always just existed one God. Oh, yes, we believe that. And so I, I stated that in about several different ways to, to affirm what they're, you know, believing. And then I said, you know, I'm, I'm confused because it's my understanding that the LDS Church teaches that God the Father has a Father, who has a Father, who has a Father, and so on. And the lead missionary says, oh, you understand LDS doctrine. I said, yeah, I do. And so then shortly after that, they said, we've got an appointment coming up, we've got to leave, and they never came back. It's, it was still a fantastic opportunity because, um, you know, anyone who clearly reads the clear teaching of God's Word, it's so clear that there always has been, always will be one God, and hopefully my mom gave them something to wrestle with. That's, that's something we want to be convicted with God's Scripture. But uh, I definitely know how intimidating it can be to share your faith with other people. That can be definitely something outside of our comfort zone. Um, I remember last year I was outside the Covington Library talking with a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses. We talked for about 15 minutes how the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is Jehovah. And the entire 15 minutes I was talking to them, my left leg just would not stop shaking. I was just so nervous when I was talking to them. But one thing that's really helped me uh, over the years is just to remember, it's not my job to convince them of anything. It's not my job to even refute every single piece of false doctrine they might state. You know, it's just, because that's the Holy Spirit's job, right? And so it's my job to love them, listen to them, and lead them to a truth in God's Word. And 
And I know that all of us want to see the fruits of our labor, right? If we're ever having a conversation with someone about faith, we want to see them convert right in front of our eyes. But the reality is that's, that's not going to happen most like 99.9% .9 of the time. For many of those witnesses and Latter-day Saints, it can take a long process of them coming out of their religion and into the arms of Christ. And so we need to be content just planting that seed and trusting the Holy Spirit to do the rest. Jesus, um, thank you so much for being who you are, the God of love, uh, the God of forgiveness, the God of grace. I pray that you would use this hour to help us equip, uh, just equip us to better love those around us with your truth, but also to edify our own faith as well. Amen. So if you missed last week, we talked about how, kind of like what my mom kind of covered, how Latter-day Saint missionaries will sometimes intentionally say things in a way that will make LDS doctrine sound identical to mainstream Christianity. They kind of have a pretty good idea of what to say and what not to say. And then we also talked, we ended up talking about Johnny, right, who, he went to the temple, he grew up a Latter-day Saint, got baptized when he was eight, he... Uh, then, when he became a teenager, he started getting baptized for the dead. And then, when he was 17, he got his, went through the endowment ceremony, went on his mission, came back. Then he continued going through the endowment ceremony about once a month for other people who had passed away. And then he got sealed in the temple, had kids, had grandkids, and they all grew up doing the exact same ordinances and the exact same rituals. Fast forward 100 years. You guys are all dead. That's a great place to start, right? <laughs> and um, you guys are going to be in what's called the, the terrestrial kingdom. So there's three kingdoms of heaven in the LDS church. The telestial, the terrestrial, and the celestial. God lives at the very top in the celestial kingdom. That's where eternal life is. And, you know, that's what we all want, right? We, want, we all want to dwell in the presence of God. But because none of you guys did the saving ordinances in the temple... You guys are not qualified for eternal life at that top kingdom. So that's kind of unfortunate for you guys. You'll still like it, though. It's still a nice place. But here's the good news. Johnny's grandkids did the temple works on your behalf. They got baptized into the LDS church. They went through the endowment ceremony on your behalf. They even got sealed to a faithful Latter-day Saint in the temple on your behalf. So thanks to Johnny's grandkids... You guys now have the option to accept their temple work on your behalf, and now you can have access and qualify for the celestial kingdom. That's how that kind of all comes together full circle. So, just the idea of baptism from the dead, right? That can be a little disturbing at times, just thinking about that. Uh, is there any kind of scripture that the missionaries might take you to to support that doctrine. This is the one they're going to go to. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? It's right there in Scripture, isn't it? So, there actually is a pretty easy way we can go about explaining this verse to the missionaries when they do come to our house, and if they do happen to touch on this. I'm going to read this verse one more time, but I'm going to emphasize one specific word. Okay, the arrow is actually supposed to be over there. Um, <laughs> um, first Corinthians, so let's read it one more time. What else shall they do 
which are then baptized for the dead. If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? So keep in mind, Paul is addressing the church in Corinth at this time. And if you notice all throughout Paul's letters, he will commonly be inclusive in his language. And if he's talking to Christians, he will use the words we and us. He doesn't use that here. He says they. And that's because there were actually other pagan groups around at that time, which were taking part of, in this ordinance, that were baptizing people for the dead. But the Christians in Corinth were not doing that. There were pagan groups around. That's why he says, you see these other people around, you see what they are doing? Um, and so that, that's a quick explanation of that verse, but it's in no way saying that Christians were taking part in that. What about the whole idea of the temple, though? Right? Because Solomon and the prophets in the Old Testament, we all agree, they had a temple. Jesus went to the temple in the New Testament times. If God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who are you guys to say that we don't need a temple anymore? The, the starting point to this answer could be something like, you know guys, when, when the God of the universe, who created absolutely everything, breaks into humanity, that's going to change some things. And that's one of the reasons why in Hebrews 7.12 it says, For when the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed. What exactly might that be referring to? Hebrews 7.22, Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. So in the Old Testament, we have the Old Covenant with prophets and temples. In the New Testament, Jesus is the better covenant. Everything is found in Jesus and the cross. And so the missionary might say, well, that's nice, Paul, but the word temple isn't mentioned anywhere in here, right? So is there anything that specifically talks about the temple? Matthew 12, 6, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. That something is Jesus. He is found. He is far greater than the temple. Acts 17.24, the God who made the world and everything in it uh, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples built by human hands. On the front of every temple uh, of the LDS Church, there's four words, house of the Lord. So they believe that the presence of God is stronger inside the temple, so if they want to try to go and become more spiritually connected to God, that's where they go. But we read right here, God doesn't dwell in temples. The presence inside the temple isn't, it, you know, it, it's not any more than anywhere else. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? As a born-again Christian follower of Jesus, you don't go to God's temple. You are God's temple. And then there's one last principle we can hit on. Revelation 21, 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So, and that's not just applicable in the future when Jesus establishes his kingdom, that's applicable right now. You know, according to God's word, there's no longer a need for a temple because of Jesus and the cross, that's our temple today. Does anyone have any questions on any, any of this stuff so far? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So your question is, do they believe all 66 books of the Bible? So, yeah, and Veronica, I know last week you kind of asked, do they believe in the Bible? Do they read the Bible? And so, um, yeah, great questions. So the answer is yes, they will tell you they believe in the Bible. And yes, they read the Bible. But lots of times they read it with uh, in the scope of LDS doctrine. I've heard many testimonies where uh, they've read the New Testament multiple times, but then some, somehow the Holy Spirit reveals the truth to them, and they become a born-again follower of Jesus, and they'll describe it as, yeah, we would read the Bible, but it's almost like there was this fog that was like blocking us from understanding what it said, because the LDS doctrine really does muddy up the waters, and as we talked about, it's very similar terminology that means very different things. So when they read something in the New Testament, their mind goes to LDS doctrine, kind of like uh, the baptism for the dead, you know, like that verse. It's, they, they start with LDS doctrine, then they kind of cherry pick from scriptures to support their doctrine. So they will tell you, yes, we do believe in the Bible. And to answer your question, Veronica, they prefer the, the King James. And they prefer the old for their prophets taught that the King James is the most correct Bible. But at the same time, they have 13 articles of faith, which kind of outline their statement of faith. And their eighth article is, we believe the Word of God, that the Bible is the Word of God, as far as it's translated correctly. So, that gives a loophole for them to say, if there's ever a verse in the Bible that conflicts with the LDS doctrine, well, that must be one of those verses that wasn't translated correctly. So, yeah. Um, so, they will say that they believe in the Bible as far as it's translated correctly. They have the Book of Mormon, they have another book called Doctrines and Covenants, and another book called Pearl of Great Price. So there's lots of scriptures that they're supposed to be familiar with, and yeah. So, um, any other questions? Yeah. Like, so 
I try to make that parallel where, you know how you guys believe that the dead can receive your good works on, on their behalf? That's what Jesus did for us. We can receive his righteousness and his works on our behalf. Does that help a little bit? Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know where the lists come from. That's a great question. Yeah, because it seems like it would be another million people every day, right? Yeah. Uh, the question was, where does the list of dead people come from? And I don't know where they get. They can literally just be making stuff up to keep people coming to the temple, to keep the indoctrination coming. That, that could be something they do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the uh, the, the point was uh, that was just made. Uh, they are strongly encouraged to go back and look at their family history to make sure that they're baptized for people in their family who have passed away who were never baptized into their church because uh, they're they're so focused on families forever. And uh, yeah, yeah, great point. Yes. Also, used to go yeah, so uh, my dad was saying that he had a, a Mormon co-worker who would uh, have pictures of, of tombstones of his ancestors from the past. So, Okay, so what about the idea of three kingdoms of heaven, right? Where does that come from? This is a pretty good illustration of the kind of the whole plan of salvation. I went into this detail uh, in detail last year. Uh, we'll just run through it real quick. So the pre-mortal life on the top left-hand side, they believe that every single person that's ever existed on Earth had a previous life on what's called the first estate. Okay, but we, there were only we were only spirit beings. We obviously don't remember anything about that life. And then we came here to Earth to get a body. It's to get a body and to go through a time of testing because we cannot become like God, i.e. become a God without a physical body. So we're here coming to, we're coming to earth, getting a body so that we can one day become exalted and become a God. And then when we die, there's a, it's actually, we don't go straight to one of the kingdoms. There's a holding place called the spirit world. And then after being there for a while, Jesus is going to come one day. The resurrection will happen. Then the judgment will happen. And then when God judges us, that's when it'll be determined which kingdom we go to. The celestial, the terrestrial, or the celestial. And if God the Father and Jesus live in the celestial kingdom on top, that's where eternal life is. That's what we all want. Is there any kind of biblical support for this that they might go to? They will always use these two verses in conjunction with each other. And when you start with LDS doctrine, it's pretty easy to see where they connect the dots. 2 Corinthians 12.2 I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So right there, we see, okay, Paul talks about the third heaven. What is that talking about? 1 Corinthians 15.40 There are also bodies celestial and bodies terrestrial. The glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. And so one of the things that's helpful for us, again, if we can kind of understand where they're coming from, that'll help us give them a better answer in a way that they would understand it. So let's start with the first one. What, how, why is Paul talking about the third level of heaven? Um, so the word heavens, all throughout the Bible, is actually used in a couple of different ways. 
And so here's one usage of the word heavens. Jeremiah 4.25, I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. So, birds of the heavens. And then a similar thing in Psalm 104.12, By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation, which sing among the branches. So here we can see that the word heaven is used as the atmosphere, or the sky, or the birds fly. Uh, another instance, uh, Genesis 26.4, And I will make thy seed and multiply it as the stars of heaven. And then 1 Chronicles 27.23, David did not count those below 20 years of age, for the Lord has promised to make Israel as many as the stars of heaven. And so here's another usage of the word heaven, right? And so this time it's talking about the atmosphere, outer space, where the sun, moon, and stars reside. So when we take all of Scripture into consideration, which we always need to do, we can conclude that that first level of heaven could be referring to the sky where the birds fly. The second level of heaven would be outer space where the sun, moon, and stars reside. And then the third level of heaven, would, that would be actually God's kingdom. So it's not in any way saying that there are three kingdoms of heaven. This is just what people in the New Testament times, how they would have understood it. But what about the other verse that specifically talks about the terrestrial and the celestial, right? That's a pretty good proof text. This is a really good opportunity for us to walk through this passage with them and show them how to uh, contextually and properly interpret the Word of God, right? And we do that by reading the verses before and the verses after, and then rereading that verse, the, the proof text, one more time to make sure we get a, a good understanding of the surrounding context. Because as we stated, many of them just say, oh, celestial, terrestrial, that supports my doctrine. That, you know, that's biblical proof right there. But no, let's, let's read through this passage together. And you can invite them. Many of them are very open to doing that with you. Because they're the teachers. They'll, they're the ones with what's called priesthood authority. They're excited to teach you about these things. So if you ask them, can we study that passage together? Lots of times they're very open to doing that. So we'll jump back five verses. 1 Corinthians 15.35 But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? So here, Paul is addressing an argument against the resurrection. That, that's kind of what he's talking about in this chapter, is the resurrection of the dead. And some people believe at this time that this life is all there is. There is no spiritual realm. It's just this life. So if, if I die, my body decays, and I turn into dust, with, like how am I possibly going to be raised, raised from the dead when my body's dust, right? That's, one of the, that's the argument that Paul's kind of addressing right here. And then Paul gives us a couple examples of what different bodies look like in the following verses. 1 Corinthians 15, 39. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds another. And fish another. So Paul's giving us different examples of different kinds of bodies here on earth. And then... In 1 Corinthians 15, 41, just a couple of verses later, he gives us another example. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. The stars differ from star and splendor. Whenever Jesus gave parables, 
it was common for him to talk about things in a way that the, the audience would understand it, right? Like faith of a mustard seed, the parable of the sower. People at that time worked in the fields, a lot of farming, so that's something that they would be able to connect the dots with and understand the point that Jesus is making uh, in a more clear way. Paul's giving us a couple examples here and helping us connect some of the dots before he plainly tells us what his answer is. Uh, like, with what body will they come? Um, and right here, it says, So it will be at the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so that last sentence, that's the entire thing that Paul's getting at. Like, hey guys, you know, you know how there's different kinds of bodies here on earth, different animals, different things in heaven? People can connect those dots. And then his whole point is, you know how they have different bodies? Well, at the resurrection, you guys are going to have a different body also. It's not going to be a physical body. It's going to be a spiritual body. And so that's the entire point that Paul's making here. He's not saying that there's different heavenly bodies that are going to go to different heavenly kingdoms. In the King James, it does use the words terrestrial and celestial. But again, when you just look at the context, uh, when it says terrestrial, it gives the names of you know bodies of fish, uh, animals, humans, things here on earth. That's why in modern translations, it says earthly bodies instead of terrestrial. And then likewise for celestial, that's just another word for heavenly bodies, talking about the sun, stars, and, and moon. So at the resurrection, again, um, Paul's just saying, we're going to have a spiritual body. That's his entire point in this entire passage. And so if you read through that, just focus on verse 44, saying, hey guys, what do you think? Like, look at that verse right there, and tell me what you think. Any questions on the kingdoms of heaven? Okay. Oh, yes. I noticed the verse was in a different, um, I don't know what uh, translation it's in. When you look at the NSV, it's different. Do they, are they open to somebody reading the Bible from a different translation than their own translation? So the question is, are the missionaries open to a different translation other than the King James? Uh, they will definitely prioritize the King James, and it really depends on what kind of missionary you get, because you will get some missionaries, King James only, no other Bible, all other Bibles are corrupt. Um, but then I've had missionaries ask me, well, Paul, which one do you think is more accurate? And, and tell me, and we had a discussion about that. So it really depends on, on who you get. Yes?
need to have that body of flesh and bones in order to become, um, in order to become a god. So you're right. That is, that is I mean, they may say, well, what about Jesus? Right after the resurrection, he was eating fish and stuff. That just might be somewhere where they would go. But yeah, that's a good question because Jesus, he did have a physical body, but it was a supernatural body at the same time, right? So yeah, great question. Yeah. Do they believe in hell? Yeah, that's another good question. Um, they do a lot of, kind of like, I don't know, like I've asked them, I've pointed to the scriptures before where Jesus says in Matthew 25, 46, the righteous will go to eternal life, the unrighteous will go to eternal punishment. What is eternal punishment? Because you guys seem to believe that everyone gets to go to heaven. If everyone goes to heaven, who are the unrighteous that get to go to, to eternal punishment and hell? Uh, so they might say, well, if I'm not in the celestial kingdom with God the Father, and if I'm in the terrestrial kingdom, to me, that's hell. So hell is almost, it can be a subjective thing, uh, depending on how, where you want to go and if you don't go there. Um, they do believe in a place called outer darkness, and they will say that the sons of perdition go there. That's kind of an even deeper topic that um, a number of missionaries I've found aren't super familiar with it. And the LDS Church has kind of backed off that a little bit. So Joseph Smith specifically taught that there's many Latter-day Saints. Basically, anyone who leaves the LDS Church is an apostate and will go to outer darkness. Um, and so, again, that, like um, a number of people, testimonies of people who have left the LDS Church and come to Christ, they were taught that because they left the LDS Church, even though they profess Christ, because they left the LDS Church, they're going to outer darkness. Um, but again, they've kind of backed off that because it doesn't quite tickle the ears of the audience, right? And they want to keep as many numbers as they can. Good question. Yeah. So the question is, what about the really, really bad sinners? Like, don't they go to outer darkness? And if they were never... My understanding is that basically only apostates go to, and, and like Satan is demons, they will go to outer darkness. But they will say that if somebody lives a terribly wicked life, but was never baptized into the LDS church and didn't have the right knowledge, they would still go to the celestial kingdom. Yeah, so they still get to go to heaven. But if you convert to Jesus outside the LDS church, tough luck. Um, yeah, okay. So. So, you, yeah. Well, because we. So the question is, well, what about us? Where would we go? Because we were never baptized into the LDS Church, we never had that full knowledge. And we're trying to be good people. We love God. So I've had people tell me, Paul, you're you're a good guy. You're going to go to the terrestrial kingdom, right there in the middle. You know, won't make it to the top. You're not going to go to the bottom. Definitely not after dark part or darkness. But you'll be in the nice terrestrial kingdom. So, yeah, it'll be good. <laughs> okay, let's move on. So, some of you might remember uh, about in June this last year, there were five LDS missionaries that came to our church, got to visit, and um, they had they, they felt, felt very welcomed, which is a big compliment to you guys. You guys made them feel very welcome. You shared with them the love of Christ. You shook their hands. You talked with them. And you treated them like people made in the image of God, which is exactly what you should do. So it was very encouraging to hear their feedback on that. Afterwards, as expected, 
they invited me to go to their church. Okay, and that's that's kind of the the trade that they're hoping will happen. I had never been to an LDS church before. I asked Chrissy, sweetie, would you like to go with me to the LDS church? She looked at me and said, no. <laughs> and then uh, a couple days later, I was talking with my parents, being like, yeah, I'm not sure if I'll go. Maybe, I don't know. And my mom was like, well, that sounds interesting. I'll go with you. And again, I know there's a number of people that feel differently about that, but we ended up going. And so uh, they started off just by singing old-fashioned hymn songs. On the left-hand side, that's what's called the sacrament. It's very similar to communion. Instead of grape juice, they use water, water and bread. The sacrament was offered to my mom and I. We stuck out our hands, smiled, and said, no thank you, and then kept passing along. And then on the left-hand side there, that's someone being confirmed into the LDS church. And my mom and I actually got to see someone get confirmed into the LDS church, which was kind of interesting. And so the process leading up to getting confirmed, kind of what that path looks like, is someone who is not in the LDS church, they're an investigator. They meet with missionaries for one to two months. The missionaries invite them to get baptized. They get baptized. Then they receive the laying on of hands. And it's only after they receive the laying on of hands that they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it must be in that order. You cannot receive the full, like you might be able to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit sometimes over another, but as far as you getting the fullness and the gift of the Holy Spirit, it's gotta be in that order. And that's something I wanna hit on real quick. So in Acts chapter 10, we read that Peter's talking about this, these group of Gentiles. Let's just read through it together real quick. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So as I stated, the LDS Church teaches it's got to be baptism, laying on of hands, gift of the Holy Spirit. Here we see Peter's talking to a group of Christians. They've received the gift of the Holy Spirit in the exact same way as us. Now let's get them baptized. And so that's just one point I wanted to hit on. And I actually, I went over this passage with a missionary, I want to say about two or three years ago. And he, he hadn't been in the field for very long. And so uh, we read through it and I asked him, you know, after reading the scripture, do you think that it, believers can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost before being baptized? Because that's kind of what we see here, right? And he said, well, I don't see why not. Sure, yeah. And then two weeks later, I asked, we, we were talking again and we got on the same topic. And I kind of wanted to remind him of this conversation. You know, I'm like, well, don't you, I remember you telling me that last time. That's what you believe still, right? And then he gave me a completely different answer this time around. He said, Paul, obviously you gotta be baptized first before you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so to me, it seemed pretty clear that after talking with him the initial time, he either went back and did his own research or he talked with a companion, learned official LDS doctrine, and unfortunately he, he idolized the LDS church doctrine over the clear teachings of God's word. 
but it was kind of interesting to see how clear God's word is on these things and how LDS doctrine can really cloud the judgment of, of our LDS friends and missionaries. Um, going back to the new member who is getting confirmed to the church, they, they announced his name at the, uh, during the church service. I'm, I'm not gonna use his real name. His, we'll just call him George. George was confirmed to the church. And afterwards, um, uh, a long story short, I, we have mutual friends on Facebook. So I was able to reach out to George and we actually talked on the phone. I asked him if I could hear about his testimony. If you could just tell me, hey, what's your background before you became a Latter-day Saint? Did you always believe in God? And, and why did you, what made you convert to the LDS church? I, I'd like to hear your, your personal testimony. And after about 30 minutes of him telling me about his testimony, then he said, yeah, so I have a question for you. Like, maybe you can help me with this. So Jesus, like my, one of my Christian friends, told me this verse in the Bible where it says that Jesus will establish his church and it will never be destroyed. But, like, but we believe that the church of Jesus was destroyed and that Joseph Smith restored it, right? How do we make sense of that, Paul? And um, so the LDS Church oddly believes that the church in general has existed even in the Old Testament times. They, uh, the Book of Mormon is very anachronistic, meaning that there's lots of things that they talk about that don't exist yet. Like, if your grandparents were to, like, if you were to read a diary of your grandparents and they talk about cell phones, you would know, like, that's not right. Cell phones didn't exist yet. So in the Book of Mormon, it does reference the church. It makes references to the Son of God. It makes references to uh, people being baptized and stuff like that. But when it comes to this idea of apostasy and the church being destroyed, uh, a common cycle that they believe happened throughout the Old Testament were waves of apostasy where a prophet would establish priesthood authority to the people, the people would rebel against God, priesthood authority would be lost, and if there is no priesthood authority, there is no church. That's what they believe. But then a prophet would, maybe 50, 100 years later, another prophet would come, reestablish priesthood authority, but then it would, it's kind of, of a repeating cycle up until the time of Christ. So, leading up till the time of Christ, um, priesthood authority was lost. After Jesus was born, he establishes his church by laying on his hands and passing on the priesthood authority to his apostles. Then after Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, he ascended back into heaven. And, but then his apostles were, you know, they were martyred, all of them except for John. And then also heresies began to creep into the church as well. Heresies like the Trinity, right? That's a man-made creed. That, that's, that's obviously false doctrine. Um, but then eventually, the priesthood authority and the fullness of the gospel was lost. And the church of Jesus Christ was slowly but completely destroyed. And then uh, 1,800 years later, Joseph Smith receives the priesthood authority, and he restores the church of Jesus Christ. That's a quick summary of the... Um, of the apostasy. Does anyone have any questions on that before we move on? Okay, let's just keep it going. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, so how did Joseph... Say 
the question is, what made Joseph Smith think that he was special to, re to reestablish the church? Where did, that, where did that idea come from? And Phil's a very good mind reader, because here we go. Um, so how, how did that happen, right? So around 1820, Joseph Smith came along, and he wanted to know what church is the true church, because he, he noticed there were a couple of different denominations, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, you know, Pentecostals, and, and whatnot. So he goes into this forest to pray, and then God and Jesus, two separate gods, two separate beings, appeared to him. And this is what Jesus said in their scriptures in the Pearl of Great Price. Um, Joseph Smith History, that's one, that's one of their books of scripture inside the Pearl of Great Price, just so you guys are familiar. And here's what it says. I was answered that I must join none of the churches, for they were all wrong, and the personage who addressed me said that, all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, and that those professors were all corrupt. That they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So, the professors that are corrupt, those are people that profess in the Trinity. That's us. We are the ones who are corrupt. We believe in the Trinity. Um, there's also 2 Nephi 29.6. The fool shall say, a Bible. We've got a Bible. We need no more Bible. So that's another example of an anachronism, where it's like some, he's talking about something that doesn't happen yet. And they'll say, oh, well, that's a prophecy. But, yeah, I know. But, uh, but anyway, the point is, uh, if you believe that a Bible is sufficient and everything you need, and that you don't need the Book of Mormon, you don't need additional scriptures, you're a fool. Solomon, do you believe the Bible is enough? Well, you're a fool. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, the all the scriptures say it. Um, well, what about maybe maybe the Latter-day Saint prophets and apostles? Maybe they, they were a little bit more lenient, and maybe the revelation changed over time. Let's see what, what some of them said. The church of the devil is the world. It's every church except the true church, whether parading under a Christian or a pagan banner. So the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the one true church. Any other church outside of that is the Church of the Devil. Okay, that's nice. Um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is no partisan church. It's not a sect. It's the only one today existing in the world that can and does legitimately bear the name of Jesus Christ and His divine authority. So again, just so you guys are clear, you cannot legitimately bear the name of Jesus Christ, unfortunately. And then one last one from one of their prophets. We talk about Christianity, but it's a perfect pack of nonsense. Myself and hundreds of the elders around me have seen its pomp, parade, and glory. And what is it? It's a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. It is corrupt as hell. And the devil could not invent a better engine to spread his work than the Christianity of the 18th century. So, according to Elias scriptures, you're all corrupt fools. According to their prophets, you cannot legitimately bear the name of Jesus. Uh, your beliefs are corrupt as hell. And um, that's just unfortunate. <laughs> Good question, Derek. Um, <laughs> So why am I telling you guys this? Am I just trying to cause separation right now? No, the reason why I'm telling you guys this is because I think it's important 
to understand the past, to see what they said, in order to act, have an accurate view of the present. And, and the reason why is because I received, there's actually a, a missionary who I've become good friends with. He just, we've been talking for over a year, and he just got back home in Denver. He's a big fan of the Denver Nuggets. And I, I've really grown to love this kid. And, um, but he would commonly say to me throughout our meetings, we've met about six times, and he would say, Paul, we don't denounce other churches, okay? I mean, you guys have a lot of the truth. We just happen to have the most truth, all the truth. Um, but you guys are doing lots of good things. You've got a lot of the truth, okay? You guys, you guys are doing good. But we don't denounce other churches. Really, though? I mean, you know, like when you dig into the LDS scriptures, I'm a corrupt fool. How is that not, a, you know, denouncing? So, now that we're aware of this, it's, it's also important to give them grace. Maybe they don't know about these things. Because again, they got a lot of scriptures that they need, to, they need to memorize. A lot of them don't look into church history like this. And so, maybe they, I'm not saying that they, they do not believe that personally. Maybe they do believe that, but that is not the position of the LDS church. And so that's just the main point there. What about the great apostasy? Here's a screenshot from their website. On that topic at the bottom, you can see that the scriptures teach that the church will never again be destroyed. If it'll never again be destroyed, obviously that means it was destroyed at some point. And missionaries might try to say this in a way that's a little bit easier for you to accept. They might say, oh, well, the church was removed from the earth you know, for a certain time where the church, uh, the gospel was just lost for a little bit. But that means the same thing. It, it was destroyed. That's, that's what they believe. Um, so the first thing that should be a big red flag is that, okay, wait a minute, you're saying the church that Jesus established was destroyed, but the church that Joseph Smith established will last forever. I mean, that should be an immediate red flag just right there. But... When it comes to Joseph Smith, um, that's a very arrogant claim. Because he's, you're right, Phil, he's the one that made that claim. Yeah, the Church of Jesus, that was destroyed, but the church I established, that's going to last forever. That's very arrogant. Uh, here's one of the quotes from Joseph Smith. I am more to boast of than any man ever had. I am the only one that has never been able to keep the whole church together since the days of Adam. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did it. I boast that no man ever did such a work as I. The followers of Jesus ran away from him, but the Latter-day Saints never ran away from me yet. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of, of yeah, what, what was kind of going on in Joseph Smith's heart. But the, uh, in regard to the great apostasy, there are two verses that the missionaries are instructed to go to. Wow, five minutes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, we'll try to wrap this one up. So there's two verses they go to to, again, to kind of cherry-pick as a proof text for a prophecy of the great apostasy that's going to happen. And this is what they are. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. So the falling away, in modern translations, that might read across as the, uh, a rebellion. And so the rebellion or falling away, that's the great apostasy. Amos 8, 11 through 12. These, the days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or of thirst for water, 
but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Um, again, if you're starting with LDS doctrine and reading these, you can kind of understand where they're coming from. Once again, this is a fantastic opportunity to come alongside them lovingly and say, can we study this passage together and just see what it contextually says? Let's just read it together, guys. We'll start with Amos. We'll jump back to the, the first couple of verses. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. The Lord said to me, the time is right for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. So this is talking about judgment on the Israelites. Okay, so the Israelites were doing something wrong, and God warned them to repent. Uh, they chose not to repent. And the, one of the things I love about God is how patient he is with people, especially in the Old Testament. Um, he, he gives them time to turn away from their sin before he judges them. And that's something that a lot of atheists might kind of not even think about or care about. But okay, so what sin were they partaking of? Uh, Amos 8.14, those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as surely as your God lives Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall never to rise again. So uh, Dan and Beersheba were the areas around the Israelites at this time. They were uh, taking part in idol worship of pagan idols, and that's why God's judging them. So again, even if you just focus on that first verse, you can see this is talking, this is a prophecy about the Israelites. It's in no way talking about the apostles and Christians in the New Testament times. What about 2 Thessalonians? If we just again start with the first verse. Uh, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, so, okay, that gives us kind of the, the, the jumping off point. This is talking about the return of Jesus, all right? And then let's read verse 3 one more time. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin, uh, of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So, the falling away and the man of sin being revealed, those are actually two different things, but they're connected to the same event. Because it's going to be the man of sin that is the leader of the falling away or the leader of the rebellion. And the man of sin is the Antichrist. <clears throat> Some missionaries might say, well, Paul, no, I think that's talking about Satan. That's who the man of sin is, okay? And we all know who that is. Well, if you keep reading to verse 9, uh, we see that the coming of the lawless one, or the, the man of sin, will be in accordance with how Satan works. So, the man of sin is, is going to be a tag team with Satan. Okay, they're going to be a team. Uh, it's not talking about Satan, it's talking about the Antichrist. And the Antichrist hasn't been revealed yet, has he? So, if the Antichrist hasn't been revealed yet, this falling away or rebellion could not have happened yet. Therefore, it can't be talking about the great apostasy that happened in the New Testament times. Um, I'd love to cover, next week we'll start by covering what did Jesus have to say about the establishment of his church. Um, but did anybody else, any questions on any of this stuff? Yeah, yeah. So 
Say that one more time, please. In Mormonism? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, are the gods equal in power? Because like we can become gods, right? Yeah. Uh, no, but, like they'll say that uh, like Jesus, they believe Jesus is our elder spirit brother. So he started off the exact same way as us, but just happened to never sin. And that he's farther along than us. And that <coughs> our Heavenly Father is, he's obviously a lot more powerful than us. And so the more we progress, the more he progresses also. So it's like a, we all progress. A, so it'll never come to a point where we're equal with God, to answer your question. That's what they believe. Yeah.